Well, good afternoon, church. Great to be with you. If you're not yet met, my name is Robin, and my wife, Laura, have the joy of leading our church. And so whatever campus you're at, whatever gathering, glad to have you with us as we continue teaching through our daily devotions. Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. We've been journeying through the book of Acts. And uh, as I mentioned several weeks ago, as we concluded the book of Mark in our daily devotions, uh, that last sermon in Mark and these first three messages in the book of Acts are really going to be unpacking some core DNA for us as a church. And so that's what we're into. I want to remind you, take notes. Uh, you can find that in your daily Devo book. There's a note section, great way to stay on track instead of getting distracted on your phone. We all know that if you open your phone, you will end up on Instagram. And so just don't take it out. Take your notes on paper. Everybody wins. Um, Acts 8 is where we're going to be. And this is a fascinating passage. It's uh, one of the, I think, the most interesting passages in the New Testament that shapes how we think about what it means to be the church. And interestingly, I last taught specifically on this passage, uh, really introducing some of these ideas on March 8th, 2020, right as the first lockdowns were uh, coming into effect. And this passage basically calls us to be a scattered people. And it was a really interesting time to call our church to be a scattered people because that's in effect what the lockdowns were doing. Uh, at the time, I didn't anticipate that they would last as long as they did, but uh, it's good to return to this passage in a more normal world and hopefully remind us all, and perhaps for many of us for the first time, hear a call to be uh, a people that live sent. Uh, this passage was the passage that really inspired the name of the book that we subsequently wrote called Living Scent that many of you, you have used as a discipleship guide. So with all that said, let's jump into Acts 8, 1 to 4. And uh, just a quick context for what's going on here. The church has been birthed. They're doing really well. It's growing. They've started to come under some persecution in Acts chapter 4, some eternal struggle in Acts chapter uh, 6. And in Acts chapter 7, we see the first signs of the real challenges that are uh, on their way in Stephen being martyred for proclaiming Jesus. And so we pick up the story right after Stephen has died. It says this, on that day, uh, sorry, Saul agreed with putting him, Stephen, to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these short verses that are so key to understanding your heart for the church. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would use them to mold us and shape us. Uh, Jesus, that it would not be my ideas, but uh, your call from your word that resonates with us. Amen. So we have this vibrant church. It's, it's, it's growing. They're reaching people. But the reality is that whenever you have success... This is true in church life. It's true in uh, school life and business life. It doesn't matter. Whenever you have success, it's inevitable that there will be critics and challenges to come. And uh, chapter seven showcases some of the internal challenges that they were facing. As they grew, they had, you know, they had some structural challenges that they had to navigate. And uh, I've written and talked about those over the years. Uh, in chapter seven, though, there's this first real blow. And it's significant because 
Stephen's death basically marks a turning point for the church where, yeah, there was some critics, there was some, some persecution, but with Stephen being killed for his faith, it was clear that this was no longer just fun and games, that this was going to be a life or death following of Jesus, a life or death struggle. And you know, when we face real challenges, I don't mean like surface level challenges. I mean the deep stuff, the stuff that really gets inside of us, those really difficult, difficult challenges individually, personally, but also collectively as a family, as a church, those challenges become the defining moments in our life. They shape us, they mold us. And in many cases, they cause our character who we are deep down to rise to the surface revealing our DNA. These events, especially the death of Stephen, is a defining moment in the life of the early church and would uh, catalyze and cause some of the character of the church to really come into being. What does it mean to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't always agree? What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? What does it mean to be the church in the face of opposition? What does it mean to be the church when there's many other things that we could do with our lives? These are the questions that the early church had to uh, wrestle with. And they're, of course, the questions that we have to wrestle with. And I pray, and I, as I work through this, my prayer is that just as the pressure, the challenges, the pain caused the church to become the beautiful thing that it, that it was and is, so too we as a church would start to look more and more and more aligned with the character that we see revealed in Acts chapter 8. Now, on the flip side to there being... Uh, challenges revealing our character, when things are comfortable, it's really easy to become complacent. And in many ways, the church has become quite complacent in the West in particular. And it's time for the church to, to really rediscover what it looks like to vibrantly follow Jesus, just like we see in Acts. I pray that our church is an Acts-like church, a church that looks like the church of Acts. Yeah, there's challenges. Yeah, there's criticism. Yeah, there's difficult days. Yeah, maybe there's persecution, although we haven't experienced too much of that. Praise God and thank God. That in the midst of all those things, there would be a church that is vibrant and faithful to the call of Jesus. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like to be that church? Well, the first characteristic I want to highlight for us is that that we saw in the early church that we can be called to is that the gospel of Jesus is life or death. The gospel of Jesus is life or death. It says here that that Saul, who would later become Paul, we'll read about that in, in later weeks, Saul, the first uh, persecutor of the church, agreed with putting Stephen to death. He agreed that it was right that Stephen die. The church wasn't playing any games here. We have someone being killed for proclaiming Jesus as Lord. The entire dynamic of the church changes on this moment. You see, it's easy for the church to say contend for ideas or philosophies or say, well, that's nice for you to believe. But the reality is that starting in this moment in the book of Acts right through to today, the church has been fighting a life and death struggle to see people receive the goodness of Jesus. 
And it's amazing because in this passage, in Acts chapter 8, we don't just see a church that has found something to live for. We, found, we, we see a church that has found something to die for. And as a result of having something to die for, they find something that is worth truly living for. You know, the church is this remarkable attribute. The harder you try to kill it, the more it thrives. That's been true throughout history. The more you try to kill the church, the more it thrives. Well, why, why is that? Well, it's firstly because the church isn't built on people. It's built on Jesus. And Jesus promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. It's true because the church is rooted in the resurrection. We, as, a, as, a fo- as followers of Jesus, are people who believe that he has conquered death. Well, you can't kill something that has conquered death. The church will always survive, will always grow, will always be vibrant, and will always be faithful to Jesus because we're those that follow the one that has conquered death. You can't kill something that has overcome death. But there's a third reason why the church thrives under these sorts of challenges. It's because the church is made up of those people who have discovered the gospel and who have been so absolutely transformed by an encounter with the living God that as a result, there is no limit to which they would go. You see, the early church, as we see in Acts 8, starting with Stephen, but then leading to all the others, there was no limit to which they would go because they had encountered the living God. And compared to an encounter with Jesus that was so transformative and so powerful and so beautiful, they were willing to give everything for it. We find people who have found something to die for, and as a result, something to truly live for. You see, the gospel is not just about being saved from our sin so that we can go to heaven. The gospel is an invitation to be fully alive. And that's what we see modeled here. Even as Saul is agreeing with putting him to death, the church says, you know what? We're willing to even go to death because we're already alive. We're fully alive. We're living for something that is worth dying for. See, the gospel is an invitation to be set free from a life of self-pursuit, of toil, of fear, of entrapment in sin. It's an invitation to live truly alive. And so because of that, because the church had received this gift of being made alive in Jesus, they had news to share. And even the very threat to their lives would not silence the church would not silence those who had encountered Jesus. Guys, we, we have news to share. And, and the call to, to being faithful to Jesus is a life or death call. It's an all-in call. It's not like this add-on to our lives. It's something that we get to do all-in, giving all of our lives because he gave all of his life for us. Said another way, they were all in on Jesus. Stephen was all in on Jesus. Are you all in? Or are you holding back? Are you sitting on the fence? To really encounter the fullness of Jesus, he invites us to get off the fence 
to not live halfway, to not be lukewarm, but to be all in on Jesus, saying, Jesus, I will give you my life, all of it, to be faithful to you. Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, puts it this way. This is about 500 years ago. Calling the church to be faithful. He says, when you see people who are ignorant, you are to direct them, to direct and teach them as you have learned, namely, that how a man may be saved through the virtue and power of God and pass from darkness to light. In other words, Martin Luther calls, calls the, the church to be people who call people out of darkness and into light, to be faithful to the gospel. Church, it's so easy to be comfortable, to create an environment where we're so-so on Jesus. We take a little bit here, we take a little bit there. Maybe we like the community, but we don't like the evangelism, or we uh, we, we like the, the, the dinners after church, but we don't like making the dinners after church, or, you know, whatever it is. You know, we take the parts we want, we ignore the parts we don't. But the truth is, to follow Jesus is an all-or-nothing proposition. We've got to get off the fence. And i got to ask us to, as a church and remind us and, and call us again to ask the question, what is my life for? What am I living for? And is the thing you're living for worth dying for? Because we're all going to die. We're all going to give our lives to something we should give our lives to something that is worth dying for. And Stephen here has found something worth dying for. In verse 1, it says, and so those who were, sorry, in verse uh, 4, it says, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. They were all in. Stephen died and they said, you know, we're going we're gonna to go harder we're going to go farther. We're going to go deeper into the things of Jesus. But when things get hard, when things get difficult, when the times are tough, when the setbacks are real, the truth is that, that it's easy to retreat, to retreat into self-pity, safety. The disciples could have turned inward thinking to themselves, this is too hard. This is not worth it. But instead of being driven towards selfish thinking, they were compelled outward to reach more people. I find it fascinating that the death of their friend compelled them to go tell other people about Jesus. Instead of them saying, it's not worth it. You know, there's many days, if I'm honest, and I'm trying to learn to be more vulnerable sharing this, where I am discouraged. You know, I'm frustrated and worn out and go say to Jesus in my, my times of prayer, Lord, this is just hard. This is just hard. It's real. I often feel that. But when things are hard, painful and difficult, it's so tempting to think about ourselves, to retreat to safety. But the church is not those who retreat to safety when things are hard. No, we are those that double down on being faithful to the call of Jesus. You see, when we experience pain, it reminds us that there are those who do not know the hope of Jesus. So when we experience discouragement, it should remind us 
that, hey, there are those who haven't yet known the call of Jesus, who haven't yet known his love and his kindness and his generosity. You see, the call to announce the gospel will cost us everything, but we still have the gospel. We still have Jesus, and Jesus is better than all of that. Those that perish without Jesus have nothing. And so even when we face trial, we need to allow the trials to remind us that in the face of the trial, we still have Jesus. Those without Jesus have nothing in the face of the trial. And so their response as a church to scatter preaching the word was a response because they had had a life-changing encounter with the living God. And that compelled them to live for the gospel as if it was a life or death issue. But the call is even deeper. The character that arose from the church more beautiful. So we see them responding as if the gospel is life or death. But then secondly, in verse 2, we see them respond with an invitation to family. It says in verse 2 that devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Stephen dies and his friends who were faithful to Jesus and faithful to Stephen, they take him, his broken body, and they wrap it up and they bury their friend and they mourned. The pain was real. You can read it in this passage. They mourned deeply over him. This was not a, a mere happenstance of people who happened to be around, and I, I guess there was this event that happened. No, these were devoted friends, family, that were in the trenches together experiencing the joys of the fruit of church family and the pains of loss together. They were arm in arm together for something bigger than themselves. This is so important. The character of the church is not just that the church is the scattered people that have news to share as a bunch of lone rangers. No, but the church is actually a family that suffers loss and pain together and rejoices in success together. You see, the church is not in the event business. In fact, the church is not in any business. We're a family. A family with a very clear, passionate, and life-giving mission to the world. And so my question is, for us as a church, do we think of ourselves as a family? Do you think of your relationship with your church as familial? Do we grieve together? Do we rejoice together? Do we mourn together? Do we celebrate together? Do we care about what happens in our brothers and sisters' lives? Would we mourn loss together? And would we celebrate life together? You see, pain in relationships can either drive us apart or bond us together. 
And what we see here in the church is although Stephen's loss was tremendously painful, it bonded them together. They mourned deeply together. You know, over the years, we have experienced many pains as a church. Some of them because of things in our control and things outside of our control. We've had loss, we've had death, we've had failures, we've had critics. You name it, we've experienced it. Because as I say, when you've been doing something long enough and you've had uh, enough of a reach, inevitably the challenges come. But those pains have actually served to bond together our deepest friendships. And we have a choice to make in those moments. When pain, is, when pain is real, it really surfaces how we think about our church. When the critics are real, it really surfaces how we think about church. You know, when things are hard, it's easy to join the crowd and throw a stone versus standing with those under attack. And yet what the church does in this moment is that they stand together. They mourn together. They bond together. You know, I see this happen in workplaces and other contexts all the time when, especially when a leader or somebody else is doing something we don't like, people just join the crowd of the critics. And uh, it's really easy to be critical of your boss, your workplace, and complain. It's a lot harder to stand with them and say, I'm going to help you make it better. I'm going to mourn with you the loss. Something powerful happens when we pull together to make the impossible happen. And so in the same way uh, that the challenges can cause us to retreat into ourselves, uh, to safety, it can also cause us to retreat from other people. So when challenges happen, rather than mourning or rejoicing with others, the, we can just end up on our own. But that's not what the church did. They buried their friend. They were arm in arm together. And I think... You know, when I'm on the recording like I am today, I'm, I'm usually speaking to our smaller regions most of the time. And you guys are amazing. You work together, you bond together, and it's amazing to see the way that your relationships form. It's one of the th things I love about our church the most is watching some of the smaller campuses really bond as you guys learn to serve and put, uh, put effort out for Jesus together. Everyone contributes, everyone helps, and everyone serves. There's actually a word for this. It's the word communitas, which means community formed through struggle or family formed through struggle. I want to encourage you to keep persevering together. When it's hard, don't, don't go through hard things alone. Walk as a family. Share the burden together. When life in your, in your own individual lives, when things are happening and they're hard, don't carry it alone. We carry it together. We mourn together. We rejoice together. Before I move on from this, uh, this thought about family, there's one other important component here. Is that it says that all except the apostles were scattered. So on one hand, uh, they were mourning and grieving. And as they did that, they also scattered to go reach the, the, um, uh, the, the broader area around Jerusalem. But they were also still tied back to Jerusalem through the original church leaders. It says all except the apostles. 
So yes, the church scatters, but it was the apostles that stayed. And what that meant was that although the church scattered, they still understood that they were a family, that they were connected to something bigger than themselves. They saw themselves as part of the body. You know, there's a real tendency to think of our role in the church as I'm just an individual and then to make decisions as an individual. Or perhaps, you know, I'll, I'll do what my peers are doing. And then we see this all the time, right? Like peer groups form and then the peer group, uh, you know, gets involved and the peer group serves. And then maybe the peer group gets disgruntled and leaves. Like, I don't know. That just happens all the time. But what we need to see is that the early church understood that they were part of something bigger. They weren't just in it so long as uh, they themselves were happy with it or that their group was happy, but they saw that they would need it to remain connected to the whole. They saw that they were part of a movement. And when you're a movement, it doesn't matter which part of the movement you are. Every part is important and every part celebrates the wins of every other part, which means it doesn't matter for us what campus you belong to or what region you're a part of or what role you have. We're all part of one big family on mission together. Really practically, I want to show you how this works out. Like, what does it mean for us to, to grieve and mourn and sacrifice and give and journey together as one movement? Well, we have a really practical opportunity to do that. And we have had this last year. We, we bought this building and it's been this crazy story of faith. God provided $1.6 million for us to purchase the building. And uh, we've raised almost uh, another uh, 1.6 in order to renovate it. Uh, like it's like a total miracle story. And it's been so cool to see our church bond together. Because one of the things that we prayed early on in the project before we'd even made it public and before we'd really launched it was that it would be a unifying effort for our church that it would serve every campus and that every person in our church, regardless of what campus they're part of, would be a part of making it happen. And we've seen this happen. It's been incredible the way that this uh, opportunity has bonded our church together. We've seen people sell vehicles, forego vacations, reallocate their bonuses from work, drawn from their long-term savings, sold possessions, given their raises, We've sacrificed together, and one day soon, we'll rejoice together when it's done. In fact, we're almost there. And I pray that as we draw to the, the, to the finish line, it would be a unifying moment for our church, as it has been so far. The gala's coming up on November 17th, and I pray that, you know, I, I, we can pitch the vision and go all out. But at the end of the day, it's a call for our church to be a family and to do something together as a family. And so my prayer is that every person in our church would be at gala and would contribute sacrificially to helping this project and the years ahead of planting churches and multiplying disciples and telling people about Jesus, that we would have the financial fuel to do that as a church. You know, we're not here because there's wealthy people that make it happen. We're here because our church works together in unity. Starting, of course, with those of us that are leaders, we sacrifice first. But then every person in our church, and you know, for those of you that haven't yet contributed, I don't want you to miss out. I don't want you to miss out on the joy of knowing, hey, I, I sacrificed to make that happen because we're all going to benefit from 
uh, Rubik's Four or the Next Generation Discipleship Center. We're all going to walk in and have meals together and raise kids there and make disciples and record and do all this, have coffees and meetups and hangouts. It'll be a blessing to our whole church. But there's something powerful knowing that, you know what, I gave something up to make that happen. We sacrifice together. We recently received a very uh, significant gift from someone in our church uh, in the uh, several tens of thousands of dollars. It's not because uh, the person was wealthy. It's because they love you. And it's true just as much when we have received, say, a $500 gift from a student where that represents like a tremendous sacrifice. And I know that for those that have done that, it's because you love those in our church and you believe in what's happening. As we sacrifice together, one day soon we will rejoice together. So I just use this as a reminder, gala's coming up. Let's not make it a thing where we have to nag and pull everybody, but let's make it a thing where we believe together in walking together as a church, trusting that as we go all in on the gospel, we will see people know Jesus. So first, the gospel is life or death. Second, the gospel is an invitation to be family. And third, the gospel is a call to everyone. It says, all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea. All except the apostles. So we have this fledgling church. And now it's under tremendous pressure, right? Like Stephen has just died. Tremendous pressure and there's fear. So we have to ask, who's going to lead the church? Who will take responsibility for it? Will it survive? Like these are the questions I could just see the, the church navigating. And so this line is fascinating. It says that in verse one, all except the apostles were scattered. Under the threat of death, the leaders stayed in Jerusalem to shepherd the movement and the disciples scattered all over the place, taking the hope of Jesus wherever they went. In verse four, we find that they preached faithfully about Jesus wherever they went. This is amazing. This is, I think, one of the most beautiful passages of what it looks like to be the church. Here in Acts chapter 8, under the threat of death, the growth of the church to leave the place of <laughs> comfort in Jerusalem, to go reach people, was led by ordinary, regular, nameless believers. It was these ordinary believers, people like you, people like me, that planted the initial churches, that had the boldness and the courage and the conviction to see the world know Jesus. They went to hard places with unknown people in a climate that was uncertain, dangerous, and fearful. And they said, let me tell you about Jesus. If we fast forward to Acts 11, we find that they became the first church planters. This is what the church looks like when it's really healthy. Everyone takes responsibility for the call to go and make disciples. It means that everyone heads out into the world with eyes open to the lostness around them. 
and looks at that as an opportunity to be bold, creative, visionary followers of Jesus. This is why as a church, we believe that anyone can plant a church because we're all called to make disciples. And so we plant churches by just making disciples. Everyone is called to full-time ministry. Everyone is called to a life given to the name of Jesus and telling people about him. And I think typically what we've done is we've looked to professionals to lead the church, to organize the teams, to run the events. Church, that's not the future of the church. And it's not what's happening globally. The church is thriving in places where it's led by people that have regular jobs, that give sacrificially to see people know Jesus. It's not the professionals that are leading the way, just like it wasn't the professionals that led the way in Acts chapter 8. It's regular followers of Jesus. Again, Martin Luther says it this way, a cobbler, a smith, a farmer, a software engineer, a nurse, could be anyone, each has the work and office of his or her trade. And yet they are all alike, consecrated priests and bishops. And everyone, by means of his own work or office, must benefit and serve every other. I want to encourage you to ask the, the question, who am I discipling? Are you discipling anyone? Are you leading anyone to know Jesus? I don't mean passively like an offhand comment, but I mean intentionally, weekly, sitting down with people that don't know Jesus and teaching them about Jesus. That's not my responsibility. It's not leader's responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. And we do it as a family, together, unified, seeing people know Jesus. The church of Jesus, this church, needs the next generation. That's our first, second, third, and fourth years. To stand up and say, I will go all in for Jesus. I won't look to someone else to lead. Or run the table, or do the evangelism, or set up the event, or make disciples. I will take responsibility to go do it, just as those in Acts chapter 8 took responsibility and said, I will go. I will do it. I won't look to my peers for whether or not I should. I won't look to those younger than me. I will simply look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I will go. I will be faithful. And then to do that with others, unified as a family, being faithful to the cause of Christ. Because that's what it means, finally, to be multiplication people. We take the gospel, which is a life or death issue, we commit to a family of believers that we do that with. We live as a people, all of us, every one of us sent. But we do it to make disciples, to see people know Jesus, to multiply hope and joy and goodness to everyone around us. What would it look like if we were to be like the Acts 8 church where everyone, all were scattered. And wherever they went, they preached the word. They were faithful to each other. They rejoiced and mourned. They celebrated together. They made disciples. Well, the Acts church, the Acts 8 church would end up reaching the entire world by doing that. 
They didn't have many resources. They didn't necessarily even know what they were always doing. But they had the gospel. They had each other. They had the conviction to go. And they had the willingness to put up their hand and say, I will do it. Church, I pray that that would be like us. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we would be faithful to you in your word. We thank you that you call each of us to go make disciples. Lord, I pray that we would do it. I pray that we would do it, Jesus. I pray that we would do it. Jesus, I pray that we would be faithful to go make disciples, all of us taking up the call, not looking to the left or to the right, but keeping our eyes fixed on you. Jesus, encourage us as we go. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. It's been a great week. Next week, we're going to continue on our journey at Acts as we shift from uh, these DNA-centric passages to uh, more traditional teaching mode. Love you all. We'll see you soon. Bye.